0: A better way to do this let me show you a better way be... hi folks this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the survival podcast As always one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't, Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 603 of the Survival Podcast. It is February 10, 2011. It's a Thursday. And today we're going to do a show where we're going to kind of do what football teams do once in a while. You know, they, they, they practice all these uh, advanced plays. And then every once in a while, a coach says, hey, you know what we're going to do today? Guys, we're going to go back to the fundamentals. And they start running drills that they may have run when they were in junior high school or even in Pop Warner. They focus on defense, ball handling, uh, you know, blocking, and, and all of those things. And I think that once in a while, in our world, we need to do the same thing. We need to do that for a variety of reasons. I'll tell you more about those in a bit. But what I'm going to talk to you about today are my 12 core tenets to modern survival philosophy, the things that I've built the show on, the things that I answer all my questions on. Whenever somebody sends me a question, the first thing I do is I look at my 12 core, the things that I put together. And there's a lot of things we talk about on this show that I feel like they're, they're, they're not mine. They're not my things. You know, it's not my method or what have you. But the, the 12 planks to modern ph- survival philosophy, to me, are mine. This is something that I put together and it drove the entire creation of the community. And I want to go over them today for, again, a variety of reasons. I'll hold on that until we get done with our housekeeping. Uh, but, I, but there's some things I think you'll be uh, very encouraged to hear about why I'm doing this today. Before we do that, though, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, silverandgoldshop.com, the wonderful, I quote, wonderful Mary Beth Maymont. Why do I call her wonderful? Because you guys do it all the time. I probably get at least one email a week using that adjective to describe Mary Beth. I've never had a sponsor before. I don't know that I'll ever have one again, that I constantly hear that word used to describe and why? Because she puts her customers first every single time. That's why. Because I've gotten emails from people that say things like I ordered uh, 10 silver coins in the morning and uh, she didn't ship till the afternoon and the price of silver went down and she adjusted the price of my order down. And you wonder why somebody would do that? Cuz well cuz that customers coming back over and over and over again. I also think that we're in a time where We really have to be prepared for severe inflation and devaluation of our currency. And exactly what form that's going to take, I'm not one of these people that lies to you and tells you I know, because I don't know and they don't either. I also don't believe that silver and gold are the most perfect solution to everything on the planet, but I do know that the one way you can insure against inflation is with silver and gold. And I do know they have a very long track ra- track record of lasting value. And I do know that they belong in your investment portfolio. I'll also tell you this. Next time you have to give a niece, a nephew, a kiddo, anybody, uh, any one of those young people uh, a present for a birthday or a bar mitzvah or a first communion or Easter or just because or whatever, Christmas, holiday, doesn't matter what it is, try giving them an ounce of silver instead of giving them a piece of plastic crap from Taiwan that they won't have a year from now. It really makes a lasting impression. And check out silverandgoldshop.com for great, very creative, cool ways to do that. Uh, Next up today, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. You know, we talk all the time about growing your own food. I'm going to talk to you about it today uh, for one of the 12 planks. We talk to you about growing things that maybe you can't find at the grocery store or that's more healthy for you at the grocery store. But a lot of times people don't really know what to do with all of this new unique food. Chef Keith Snow specializes in telling you how to use seasonally grown and locally grown foods to make delicious meals. So check out HarvestEating.com. It's a great way to have, you know, your preps actually make sense. Because the first thing I'm going to tell you today is everything you do to prepare for disaster should help you even if nothing goes wrong. So all this food that you're storing and growing, you should be able to use. And you should be able to make it part of your daily diet. Check out HarvestEating.com to learn exactly how to do that. Next, I have an announcement. The gear shop is back online. Uh, we have some really cool things coming up. Today, I will be uh, doing some modifications to the members' support brigade, and one will be including a discount code for you. So if you're a part of the member's brigade, you now get a discount at our, our gear shop, which I think is uh, long overdue, but it required a software upgrade that, that Tiffany just got to. So um, lots of great stuff there. But the big news is I went last with the copper rounds. Um everybody's been waiting for their copper. Everybody should have their copper by now unless you just recently ordered it in like the last couple of days. Uh, but I got my AOCS TSP copper round uh yesterday, I got fifty of them in the mail, just like everybody else that's been waiting on them. They are absolutely gorgeous. And every email that I've received from a customer that's received them has said the same thing. Tiffany did an amazing job in the design of this coin, and the AOCS folks and the mint that they used did a stunning job of minting this copper. Folks, there's only a, like a thousand in inventory right now. I think we have a couple thousand on order uh, coming in with the next wave. You're going to want to get some of these. Um, I'll tell you what, they're absolutely gorgeous. Stop by the Gears Shop, check out the AOCs copper rounds, and get some ordered today. I mean, you can order five of them for like seven bucks. You can order, you know, twenty-five of them. Uh, I think for a right rate around a dollar a piece, an incredible value, a great way to share the message of preparedness. And remember, it's also about sharing the the, the message of honest money with trtam.com. And with that, I'll go ahead and and wrap things up today with the housekeeping today Uh, because I want to really get into this subject deep. I'll leave all the other stuff we usually talk about go because here's the thing. This is part of what I wanted to share with you about why I'm doing this today is I'm going to go into my analytics right now and, and talk to you a bit about how many people come to this website. In December of 2010, there were about 150,000 roughly unique visits to the survivalpodcast.com. It doesn't really include the forum. That's just the main blog site. People coming to listen to the show, read an article, what have you, the main website. In January of 2011, there were 208,000 unique visits. That means roughly 58 to 60,000 more people. That's growth. That's That's the biggest growth the site has ever experienced. That's a lot of new people. That's a lot of people coming for the first time. And I have a tendency sometimes to forget about the fact that we did all this great work as the show was growing through its first 100, 200 episodes. And we assume that everybody that's here today has maybe gone back and listened to those. But, I mean, let's, let's face it. We're talking about 1,000 hours of programming now. And, and very few people you know, have gotten all of those things in. And there's a few of them that are really important. Because they are the core. Like I said, when you email me and you say, "Jack, I have this problem," just as if you know, if our law, if our our, our people in leg- the legislature, our congressmen, and the president were doing, and the in the judges were doing their job the right way, whenever they had something they had to make a decision on, the first thing they would do is they would pull out the United States Constitution and say, "What does the Constitution say?" And they would let that be their guidance if they believed in something enough to, say, to swear an oath to it they would let it be their guiding light and, and they don't do that but I do try to do that my 12 planks became the Constitution for the community this is what we believe in and it's up to you and in fact the final tenet puts all the power on you the the, the, the the final one says you can do whatever you want but it all for me it all comes from these first eleven and due to that, my goal with this show is more about teaching you how to think about preparedness than telling you exactly what you need to be doing. If I can get you to think the right way, you can make your own decisions and tailor your entire solution to your life, because your life and my life are different. Uh, for a long time, I've been living in a little suburban uh, area here in Arlington, Texas. Very different if you live on 10 acres in Wyoming. I'll be soon moving to five acres in Arkansas. We're getting very close to that. Thank you for all of you that helped make that possible. But if you're now living on a 10 acre lot in, in San Francisco, we have very different lives. We have different income levels. We have different numbers of children. I have one son. He's 21 years old. He's pretty much on his own now. You may be starting out and have two children, one five and one seven. For me to think that my life and your life are so identical that we can do the exact same plan and have success with it would be asinine and arrogant. And I try not to be either one of those things. But specifically, I try to stay away from arrogance. I'm a person that very much believes in the things I believe in. And I believe them to my core or I wouldn't bother telling other people about them. And sometimes that can come off and sound arrogant, but it's never the way I intend it. And, and, and kind of my my... My catch-22 to say, hey, look, it's not arrogance, is in the end you make your decisions for yourself. I'm just emphatic about why I make my decisions for me. And it's having this core, it's having this central philosophy that's well thought out, well planned, that looks at the, the history of the world. And every time people have come under fire, be it economic or actual fire, and be it as an individual or as a community or as a nation, and saying, what, if those people had lived a certain way, what would have been the best way for them to have gotten through it? Who did it successfully? Who failed? And that came to these 12 tenants. And that's why I think it's important that whether you've been listening since almost day one, or if you're a brand new person, you hear this episode today, and you get a refresher, or you get, maybe you get them for the first time. And that hopefully you take them and you do make them your own. And you understand when I get to the last one that I'm completely sincere when I give it to you. The first one is the guiding tenet, and it's the one that is the most important. Because it is the one that if you do not follow it, you will get hurt. You will have problems. You will bet on failure, and anything other than failure will result in failure for you. And so what is it? You have to prepare for everything, including nothing going wrong at all. You have to have a plan in your life where if nothing fails, you're still going to be better off than if you had not taken these actions. We sum it up with the show catchphrase. Helping you live the life you want if times get tough or even if you don't. See, the problem in the disaster community, uh, in the preparedness community, the survivalist community, all of these niches that are really about the same thing, being prepared, is that they bet on failure. They bet on failure. We know that the currency of the United States will eventually fail. Great. So we need to be prepared for that. Great. But do you know there's been people singing that song for a long time? Since all the way back to the time we put this stupid thing called the Federal Reserve in place? Do you know that the currency technically has failed five times since that happened? You know, Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods 2, the the Federal Reserve itself in 1913 was a failure of a prior currency system. We had the move in the 30s away from the gold standard partially. We had the complete divestage of the gold standard in 71 and the real decoupling in 75 that most people don't even understand. So what does that mean? That means our currency can fail and it can fail in such a way that most people don't even know it failed. Now that's not what the, the, the bald guy on TV that wants you to buy a bunch of gold this month is going to tell you. And that doesn't mean you should invest in gold. But it does mean that All of these prophets of doom that start saying crap like, well, it'll happen within 18 months, they don't know. And even if it does happen, they don't know what it'll look like. They don't know what the results are going to be. They don't know what the adaptation is going to be. And that if we do all our preps based on the fact that tomorrow everything is going to fall apart, and tomorrow comes and everything doesn't fall apart, we're worse off. And then that breaks our first tenet. Everything you do should improve your life, even if nothing goes wrong. And all of the things that we do, if we do them smart, methodically, planned out, and rationally, will make our lives better today. But if we don't get that first one right, everything will begin to unravel, and what we have are people making very foolish decisions. We have people that panic, cash out 401ks, pay penalties, pay interest. Go out and buy nothing but gold. And then gold takes a dump and drops by 25% in value. And now they're sitting on something that they have to either sell or does nothing for them. Because they haven't put things in balance. Everything must be in balance. And that means we must prepare for success and failure. And I'll put it to you like this before I move to the next one. If we only prepare for failure, we are as foolish as those who only prepare for success. I think that's an original quote for me. If I took it from somewhere else, somewhere in a brain cell way back there. But I think you should really maybe even write that one down. Maybe share that with with other preppers today. If we prepare only for failure, we are as foolish as those who prepare only for success. The world is made up of both, and we must plan for both accordingly. The next one, it doesn't sound very survivalish. Okay, it doesn't sound like the thing that you would see about on a TV about the about Armageddon or about uh, an end times thing or about a meltdown of the economy or a pandemic flu. It doesn't it doesn't sound like that. But when it comes to making a real difference in our lives, regardless of whether we have failures or successes in the world, it may be the most important one there is, and that is debt is a cancer. You have to kill it. Debt is cancer. If you are in debt and you are putting your family in deeper debt, let me say it to you in a way you will perfectly understand. Cut the shit out. Stop doing it. You're screwing your family over. And some people need to hear that. Some people are real offended right now, and you want to turn the mic off. Well, give me a chance and listen. I just might be telling you what you need to hear, and that might be why it's turning you off today. If we take two people... Both about 25 years of age. And they both come out of college, and one's carrying a lot of student loan debt, and the other one isn't. And the other one's lived pretty poor. He's got a crappy car, you know, and he doesn't have a lot, but he has no debt. The other one's carrying that student loan debt. He drives a nice car. He's got some credit cards in his pocket. And then the the guy without the debt goes out and kind of buys an entry-level home, gets his first job, starts to build a life, finds a, a wife. By 27, he's having his first kids. Our other guy with all the debt is doing the same thing. He's got a nicer house. He's got a nicer car. These two guys are earning about the same money. They came from the same background, have the same skill sets, same education. By about 35, if we're to look at these two individuals, the average person is going to say the guy carrying the debt is much healthier financially. He's going to have two beautiful cars. His kids are going to be in all the activities. Maybe he's going to be in the golf club, and you know his wife is going to be in all the social activities. And they have this beautiful house, maybe in a gated community. And the guy that's been living within his means, he'll just now be starting to come, kind of flower as a crop, so to speak. Just now he'll be able to start letting his kids do more. Just now they'll be able to go out maybe and buy that really nice car for the first time. Just now maybe they're buying that boat or whatever it is. But the average person looking at the two looks at the guy that's living in debt and says he's much better off. Look at how he lives. Because they're only judging the surface, the lifestyle. Inside, inside the debt, for the first couple, the one with all the debt is a cancer, and it's eating away at them just like cancer. And by 45, they're sitting down with their face in their hands. They're trying to put their kids through college that they can't afford to do. They're sat in their children with the same student loan debt, and they're still paying off their own. They're doing the math, and they're figuring out that they're going to be 70 years old before they're done paying their debt off if they keep making minimum payments and if they stop spending. And they've put themselves into a situation where they cannot stop spending. The cancer has metastasized into every aspect of their lives. The other couple that's 45 and debt free has children going to college that will come out debt free. And has everything that they need in their lives paid for to the point where they probably don't even need life insurance anymore. That's what debt does to people over time. And remember, this is why we start out the first one. We have to prepare for success, not just failure of the system. The system might morph and change into a way that creates a type of success we're not prepared for. We have to, see, people say to me, why should I pay off my debt since the whole thing's going to crash anyway? Because it might not, or it might not tomorrow. Your life can be seriously damaged over the next 10 to 15 years, even if the crash comes the way you expect it to 10 to 15 years from now. And then you're going to be completely weakened at the point that it happens. With no strength, with no buildup. up Dead is cancer. You have to kill it. And if I offended you when I said cut the shit out, I'm going to say it again, cut the shit out, be offended. I don't care. Your family's worth more than feeling really good about yourself today and doing without tomorrow. The next one is, you have to grow and produce some of your own food. I really believe that. Now, if you live in a in a in an apartment or a small garden home or something like that where it's difficult for you to do this. I understand your limitations. Grow some herbs in a window. Uh but for long term, I think that everybody should have the goal of getting somewhere where you have enough land to produce some portion of what you eat, even 10%. I think it's probably the most important thing you can do for your long-term survival. So if you say to me, well, what do I do today if I live in an apartment? Pay off your debt and find a way to buy land in the future. And I don't care if it's a tenth of an acre in the suburbs. The nerveuses in California have a tenth of an acre in the suburbs. Look them up on YouTube. They grow six to 7,000 pounds of food a year on a tenth of an acre. So you can make it work wherever you go. Now, I would prefer that most people try to find a little bit more than that. But there's so many reasons that you have to grow and produce some of your own food. I put it this way in my original statement about it. It's not just for hippies and people that want to save polar bears. It's for everybody. Some of the reasons are simplistic, and they don't have anything to do with whether or not we have failure or not. Our food supply is becoming more and more toxic every day. They have now made food. Food you eat that can be sprayed with herbicide and not die. What does that mean? That means they take the food, they grow the food, they spray the food with the herbicide, and if the the plant takes the herbicide up into its into its system and you eat the herbicide. And that is what it means. Or the grain is fed to a cow who bioaccumulates the herbicide and then you eat the cow and accumulate the herbicide. They now take corn and take a gene from a fish and create a toxin inside the corn so the corn borer eats it, it dies and they feed it to you and they tell you there's nothing to be concerned of it's completely and totally safe and then scientists take the corn feed the same corn to a rat and feed the other rat corn that's not genetically modified and the ones in the group eating the GMO corn get liver and kidney failure and die that's what's in our food supply Completely eliminating it, it is very difficult. Even eating organic won't do it for you. The organic, the big organic companies like Whole Foods, they threw in the towel. They've stopped even fighting GMOs. You go to Whole Foods, there's plenty of GMO food at Whole Foods and similar markets. The only way that we can begin to repair the damage of this toxicity into our body is buying from known local suppliers and growing some of our own food. We have to grow some of it. It's bigger than that, though. Yes, if we have a disaster, the food you can produce may very well be what sustains you. But beyond that, if we don't understand the problem, we cannot take steps to fix it, and America does not understand the problem today. Because we are so disconnected with our our food source, that most Americans believe that food comes in plastic packaging. You know, steak doesn't come from a cow, it comes from a package in a store. A chicken doesn't run around and flap its, its wings. We just had a person that wrote in and told me that their neighbor was alarmed that they ate eggs from their backyard chicken flock because they were eating, and I quote, eggs that came directly from the chicken's butt. Where does she think her eggs come from? I mean, seriously. And this is the America of today. And a lot of us will laugh at this, but if we've never grown our own food on any level, we have no idea how hard it is, how difficult it is, what's required. How much blood, sweat, and tears goes into your salad? You have no idea. And if we're going to create a next generation, our children and their children, who go out and solve this this problem, then we're going to have to put them in touch with where their food comes from. 'Cause as long as they think food comes from the store, there's no there's no impetus to solve the problem. There are so many reasons to do this that if you have any doubts you're just gonna have to trust me. And if you all you have is a balcony, grow some herbs and maybe a cherry tomato and some runner beans on your balcony. But grow something for yourself and reconnect with your food supply. And find local growers, a local uh, community-supported agriculture, a CSA, a farmer's market, a local grower who sells direct. Go do business from your pocket to his hand to your basket. Become in touch with your food supply. If you don't do that, you'll never really understand the risk that we face. And part of being prepared for disaster is to understand its nature. And there's so many people out there that are convinced that their one disaster is the problem... That they're clueless to the true danger. Everybody out there that's just like, "Your only danger is the U.S. economy collapsing. Okay, well what happens when they figure out how to fix it, quote unquote? And not fix it forever, we know that this system is doomed. But fix it for the next 20 years. What happens to all those people, that's what they were worried about. All of a sudden the numbers start to look better, they pull some shenanigans, right? They do whatever it is that we think they need to do. They go back to gold standard as though that will fix the idiocy and lunacy of our government spending. Oh, okay, well, there's nothing to worry about now. Well, we have a lot of things to worry about. And the biggest one is our food supply. And our food supply is under attack from so many directions, it staggers the mind. Genetically modified food, yes. Depletion of the water supply. We have what are called fossil aquifers. They're underground seas. That's how we irrigate most of our cropland in the Midwest now. When they're empty, they're empty. They're not coming back. They don't fill back up. Well, they do, but they take longer than you're going to be here to fill back up. i talking fifty to 100,000 years or more. Some of them wouldn't even be, begin to fill back up in that time period. We have a fact that our crops have become completely dependent on chemical fertilizers, and we're even looking at a point where there might not be enough phosphorus for commercial production of fertilizer and we might go into what's called peak phosphorus. And that's just the beginning. We have diseases and we have th- that hit our crops. And we never know how bad it's actually going to be. When you grow a beautiful tomato plant and you were just about to pick that tomato, and the leaves turn brown and start to fall off and the tomato rots, and you see what blight does, you won't just think those are words. You'll understand the risks. I want you to garden as much for the success that you will have as for the failures that you will have. The two together will make you a more complete individual that better understands your place in the world. And that will make you more prepared to deal with whatever the world hands you. The next one is taxes theft, pay only what you must. Now look, I'm not here to get you in trouble and send you to jail like Wesley Snipes went, and I'm going to get emails from at least 10 people today there to tell me, "The income tax is unconstitutional. You don't have to pay it. You can go to this guy and you and, and you'll go to jail eventually." We can argue whether or not it's constitutional, though we're blue in the face, and I believe it is unconstitutional. And I believe 90% of the things our government does and enforces today are unconstitutional. But their reality And this reality enforced at the point of a gun. And we have to deal with it. That means I pay every dime of income tax that I owe to the federal government. I pay my social security taxes. I pay my sales taxes. I pay any tax that I get a bill for that I legitimately owe. And I hire the best damn accountant I can find to find me every single legal deduction I can take. And I minimize my tax in every single way that I can. And I also minimize taxes through other creative strategies. If I make beer, I don't pay an alcohol tax. And that's very simple. If I were a smoker, and I'm not, I don't think you should be either. But if you're going to smoke, grow some tobacco. It's not hard to do. Understand, you live in a nation that is one of the largest tobacco producers in the world. That our initial country was built more on tobacco than anything else. More than cotton initially. Far more. Tobacco built America. If, if, if farmers in, in the 16, and seventeen and eighteen hundreds can grow tobacco, you can do it today, in the year two thousand eleven. Grow your tobacco. Why are you going to pay a seven hundred and fifty percent tax to the government? See, to me, the tax uh, the, the tax strategy portion of this is about the rebellion strategy. It's not just that if I buy something and I have to pay a tax on it that I don't have that money for myself. It's not just that if I earn a dollar and the government takes 20 cents, that I don't have the 20 cents. That's only half the problem. The bigger side, the bigger half, you know, remember when you were a kid, and you would split something with your brother, or your sister, or a friend, and you'd say, I want the big half, or you'd give them the big half, right? It's supposed to be half, but yet there's one that's a little bit bigger. Well, the bigger half of the problem is what the government does with the money you see every penny they take from you can be used to increase the size scope and ability of government to enslave you and that might sound conspiratorial but I want you to think about this every single thing government does that takes away your liberty requires money because for it to matter it must be enforced and that's that's just flat true the government can pass a law that says it's illegal for you I don't know to put a green um, a greenhouse in your backyard. I don't think they're going to do that. Don't freak out. I'm just being extreme to make a point, all right? So they can pass that law. Now, what they need is for people to enforce it for it to have any teeth. So they say there's going to be a fine, the police will come out and write you a ticket, what have you. But if the police don't have enough money to spend their time writing tickets for greenhouses, everybody in America can have a greenhouse and there's nothing that the, the law means nothing. What the government does is take your tax dollars, create programs that are supposed to be for your benefit, and use it to strip away your liberty. So it's not just about what you don't have. it's what you give to them that really matters. Taxes aren't just too high. They are insanely high. We can look at it and say, well fifty percent of Americans don't pay taxes. Don't believe that class war fair bullshit, okay? That's all that is. It's designed to to take you, the upper middle class or the wealthy or the middle class, and divide you from everybody just a little bit underneath you. Because all those people that they say don't pay, pay Social Security, they pay Medicare, they pay sales tax. And there's about 107 taxes the average American pays they never even think about paying. On everything from your food bill to your phone bill. That's the amount of tax we pay. We pay tax when we go to the gas station. We pay tax when we pay our electric bill. We pay tax to the cable TV people or the Dish Network people if we have satellite. We pay tax to our internet service providers. Tax, tax, tax. All I'm saying is avoid every penny you can, but keep it smart and do it legally. And there's lots of legal ways to do it. It has to be part of your strategy. Because if it can save you just a $1,000 a year, That's $1,000 for your gold investment for the year or for your silver investment for the year or to build your garden or to build your greenhouse or for your long-term food storage perhaps or whatever it is. But it's also $1,000 they don't have to take more away from you. And there's a fundamental fact no matter what your political stripes are that you have to accept as reality. The larger a government is the less freedom the people within it have. And our government has done nothing but got larger since George Washington till now. That's a fact. It doesn't matter what letter's been after a president's name, the size and scope of government has increased, and therefore the liberty of the people living here has gone down. And there has to be a point where no matter how much government you think is good, there's a point where you have to say, it's gone too far. I think we've gone too far. And I think taking some of the power back with our pocketbooks is one way to do it up to the point where if you are completely self-sufficient you don't need income and then they get nothing from you that might be the extreme example but if we aim for the extreme and we achieve some level in between we've made an advancement in other words the athlete will only jump as high as we place the hurdle so at least long term we need to be think how can we avoid 100% of any contribution to this government that's run amok on us. And then we do what we can to somewhere in between. The next one, really important. Stored food is a safe investment. And I think this is a big issue for a lot of people, especially married couples. And if you have a spouse, even though I'm still dealing with this voice issue that I have from uh, the laryngitis, this might be one part they need to listen to if they're not totally on board, especially with the food storage. The average food commodity... Over the past year, has gone up somewhere between 70 and 125 percent. It's a hell of a lot more than the stock markets done. And I'm talking about the most basic commodities that our food system is based on: wheat, corn, soy, uh, barley. All of these things, rice, have just gone legumes, beans, all gone up. That was the case from 2007 to 2008 when people still thought the stock market was good. It was the case from 2008 through 2010 before the market began its real rebound after the crash, and it's still the case now today. It's a constant. If you go look at what it cost to buy a loaf of bread in in 1980, it's a hell of a lot less than today. And no matter what food item you look at, you go back five years even, you see an increase. That means that food constantly goes up in price. So what happens is one partner says, I want to increase our long-term food storage, and maybe they want to spend 500 to to $1,000 over the next month or two um, practicing eat what you store, store what you eat, long-term storage, beans and rice, uh, MREs, a combination of these things, instead of just one magic bullet. So there are some things that are really a 10-year plan, and there's some things that we're going to eat tomorrow, and we're just going to buy more, and we're going to set up a rotational pantry. The other spouse here is, I want to spend $1,000, and fails to understand the fundamental reality that the money will be spent any, anyway. And it doesn't matter if it's 1000 or 5000 on food. You will spend the money anyway, because tomorrow morning you're going to wake up, and your stomach's going to go, and you're going to be hungry. Because you haven't eaten, so you will break fast or have breakfast. Some have traditional breakfast at 7 a.m. Some people are like me, and they basically eat their breakfast at 11 in the afternoon. But sooner or later, you will break your fast, which is where the term comes from. And you will do it every day for the rest of your life until you die. And when you stop eating, you either stop eating because you are dead or you are dying and can't eat anymore. It is a constant. You will spend the money on food. It's like buying gas for your car. The only reason you only put five bucks in your car, you can't do that anymore, you won't go anywhere. But let's say ten bucks, the only reason you only put ten bucks in your car is because you don't have eleven. Because you don't have the money. If you have the money, you always fill your car because you're going to do it anyway, and odds are next week the gas might cost more. We have to start looking at food the same way. And I want you to think about it this way when you when you when your significant other says we should lay up a thousand dollars worth of food. If they came to you and said, I think what we should do is take about $1,000 out of savings and invest it into a CD or a money market fund or a mutual fund or a stock, as long as it was a well-thought-out, well-researched investment, you wouldn't see the money as spent. You would see it as invested. At least you should. If you had an extra $1,000 in your savings account, they said, I just want to move this to a CD, lock it up for a year because we're getting a quarter of a percent, and they got a CD here at one and a a quarter percent. You say, well, I still have the money. That makes sense. So a year from now, if you make an investment like that, you'll have anywhere from one and a half percent more to if you get a good stock, maybe 10, 20 percent more money. Well, if you invested in food last year, you would have a return somewhere between 70 and 125 percent on your money. If we see food stored as an investment, we're not afraid to store it is the the, the short way to get there. So I understand the resistance when somebody wants to go out and buy a year's supply, straight out of the gate, they have nothing stored up at all, and they want to go buy a couple pallets of Mountain House or Alpine Air or Provident Pantry or something like that uh, and and just stick it in the garage. I understand because you may never eat that food. Honest to God, you might not. You might need it, and if you need it, you're going to be really happy that it's there, but I understand the, the spousal objection to that. But when it comes right down to it, if you're going out and you're just saying, look, we eat ragu spaghetti sauce, which I really wouldn't eat, and I find it as a toxic substance, but let's just say you eat it. And instead of buying a jar this week, we're going to buy five jars. And I'm going to stick it in the shelf, and I'm going to put the furthest one to the back is is the one with the longest expiration date on it. And every time I take one out of the front, I'm going to pull them forward like it's a grocery store. I'm going to go buy another one. In fact, I'm going to go buy two until I get ten of them there and I'm going to build out my pantry that way, well, all of a sudden, you've moved up into a place where with your own little simple thing you have to do every day like eat, you're behaving like Southwest Airlines does, and why? they're one of the most profitable airlines in the industry. You're practicing what's called a capital deferral. You're paying today's prices for a commodity you will use tomorrow. That's what they do with their fuel. They lock fuel contracts in today, and then tomorrow, they're flying people with fuel they bought a year ago. And it's more risky for them because gas goes up and down. Food doesn't go up and down for crap. Additionally, as we start to build out this pantry, we start to go, hey, uh, ragu spaghetti sauce is not on sale this week, and I have 10 jars at home. I don't need any. You know? And you don't buy it because you don't have to. So now you're not buying it because you need it. You're buying it when you want to resupply. So next thing you know, it's double coupon day. You have a coupon, and it's on sale. And now you buy six jars. Now you're doing opportunity buy coupled with capital deferral. These are very advanced financial strategies that large corporations use to squeeze every bit of profit they can out of their operations. I'm just suggesting you run your kitchen the same way. But understand this. No matter what you do, you almost cannot screw this up. If you store food that your family eats... So this isn't 400 pounds of pinto beans when you've never eaten a pinto bean in your life. If you store food your family eats, you cannot financially lose. You will receive a return of investment on food stored. Now, your long-term storables, your dried beans, your pastas, your rices, and things like that, those help accumulate a large bank of calories. So if you have to go long-term, they're there. They still should be things that you use. Learn to cook with rice and beans. It's good stuff. Half the world lives on it. Learn to do creative things. Don't go buy 100 pounds of pinto beans tomorrow. Go buy a pound. Learn to cook with them. Buy a pound of five different kinds of beans. Find the one you like. Build the bulk of your storage on that. Learn to be creative with these long-term storables. Even the stuff from Mountain House in the big number 10 can. Once in a while, pop open that can of pork chops. And feed an entire you know you have an impromptu pool party. Feed them pork chops out of mountain house. They're good. They won't know. And after they eat it, and they tell you how great they are. Tell them hey, that was freeze dried food from five years ago. Share preparedness that way. But just understand when you spend money on food, it is not gone. It is invested. Plain and simple. The next one I'm going to have to abbreviate. And I should probably do a whole show on this again, even though I've done them in the past. Maybe next week. But a disaster probability and commonality it's really the linchpin to everything. The first thing we have to understand is that disaster probability has an inverse relationship with with disaster impact. And what I mean by that is, is the probability of disaster goes down, the impact of disaster goes up. Sounds complicated, but it's not. Here's what I mean. A disaster that could strike you tomorrow, God forbid it does, and if it happens to you This is not a prophecy, but someone you love dies tomorrow morning. It will happen to thousands of people tomorrow. That means one of them could be me or you. Losing your job is an individual disaster. It's happened to millions of people over the last few years, and it's still happening to people every day. Losing your home to fire or weather damage happens to thousands of people every year. All of these things that affect you but not your neighbor, or you and just a few of your neighbors, are more likely than complete economic collapse of the United States of America. Or an asteroid from outer space smacking into the middle of America with the force of 10 atomic bombs or 1,000 atomic bombs. But the disaster that affects more people, the big disaster, obviously has a higher impact scale. So the problem with that is that people look at this And they say, I've got to prepare for the big one. i got to get ready. I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready. What? To be that way is like saying I want to save a million dollars. I want to save a million dollars in a bank account. So I have a million dollars one day. Or I want 10,000 ounces of gold. But I'm not going to buy my first quarter ounce coin, which is all I can afford right now. Because I'm saving for a million ounces or a thousand ounces. The quarter ounce, it's it's not really my goal. you got to start with one to get to a million or to get to a thousand. There's always the first one. So if we're going to get prepared for disasters, it makes sense to sit down and simply say to ourselves, what is the most likely thing to happen to me in the next week or the next month or the next year? And let me prepare for that. And you start to realize that things like storing food that everybody talks about for Armageddon makes perfect sense if you lose your job. If you're sitting on six months' worth of food, you don't have to go to the grocery store for six months. And that is a lot of weight off of the mind and heart of a family when they're trying to survive. And they're not going to have to live on a food stamp card and stand in line at the grocery store and have the food stamp card be $5 less than the items on the conveyor belt, and have to figure out, do I put back the biscuits or the instant potatoes? That's as real as I can make it for you. And it's happening to people every day right now. It's not hypothetical. It's not maybe. It's now and it's real. And it absolutely can happen to you. And only an arrogant person believes that it can't. So the first thing we do is we say, I'm going to be prepared for losing a spouse, losing a child, having my home destroyed, having a major disaster in my neighborhood that that makes us have to leave for a month or longer, losing my job, being crippled and put in a wheelchair. You know the stuff that happens to people every day? I'm going to prepare for all that. By the time we get done with that, We sit back and we look and we say, hey, you know what? If we do have that economic meltdown, I'm a hell of a long way on my way to preparedness for it. And then we just keep expanding. And we say, okay, what if it's a Katrina-style hurricane? Now, maybe you live somewhere where a hurricane can't happen, but something that causes the same type of shutdown of systems can happen where you are no matter where you live. So we prepare for that style of an event next. By the time we do that, We're almost as prepared as a person can be, and going that extra mile gets to be very, very easy. If you wanted to save that 1,000 ounces of gold, the first 999 ounces, really hard to do. The last one's easy. So we're going to take the first steps instead of trying to run the marathon from day one. And the beauty of this is it's not a marathon where you're racing anybody. It's simply a marathon with a point where you get to where you've succeeded, and you just need to start taking the steps in that direction, and that's all about disaster commonality and probability, and the commonality part, so I don't gloss over it, let me make sure I kind of bring this all together for you, I've just really said it, but you need to fully understand it, all disasters have the same type of impact, it's just a matter of how many people feel it, so if it's Katrina, and I'm sitting in, in Dallas, I didn't really feel it very much. other than I saw it on my, my TV, and I emotionally felt for the people dealing with it. But my house was fine. But those people went without food, shelter, energy, security, and water. Those five things. So if I'm going to prepare for disaster, I'm going to prepare to provide, in the event of failure, my own food, my own water, My own shelter, my own security, and my own energy. And every prep involves one or more of those five tenets. And if you go out into wilderness survival, and you go out to a typical wilderness survival school, we're going to teach you to survive in the mountains or the desert or the jungle. They're going to teach you five fundamentals. Food, water, shelter, fire, and security. All I've done is change fire to energy. Because that's what it's really about. When you're out there in the woods and you build a fire, to keep warm, it's energy. To cook your food, it's about energy. To provide lighting, it's about energy. In our modern society, fire is energy. And energy is fire. And every disaster has a commonality around those five needs. If we look at when we have a place like Haiti, ravaged by earthquake, put into absolute, beyond squalor, because they were squalor before the earthquake. What do they say we need? Food, water, medical supplies, comfort items. It's all about staying warm or staying cool. Taking care of your health, feeding yourself, having clean water to drink. Food and water are as much about health as they are about sustenance as a whole. If you don't have good clean food and good clean water, you're going to get sick. You get sick in a disaster where there is no medical care. You're going to probably die of things that people are cured of every day. You have to realize that those things may not be available. But even when it's just you, the needs are the same. So if we plan for the five needs, if we plan for the commonality, all of a sudden we're no longer preparing for a disaster. And this is the big issue. When I put this show together, I realized that this was going to be something that three years from the day I started, I would still be doing it. And that that, that anniversary is coming up very, very soon. That it had to have longevity beyond paranoia. And that most people that get into preparedness become convinced of one threat. And they prepare for that threat. And when whatever deadline exists because somebody told them what it was, or because it's a hard date like Y2K was, or because just in their mind, well, it hasn't happened yet, it's probably not going to happen, whenever that date came, they fell out. They quit preparing. They realized it was a mistake. Because they didn't plan for success, just like we started out with. To be a good prepper, to be a good modern survivalist, to be self-sufficient and independent, to have liberty in your life, you do not prepare for any specific disaster. We may look at them to learn lessons from them. We may use them to reinforce our preps. We may say, well, what would we do if the electrical grid went down? but we don't prepare for the electrical grid to go down. We prepare to deal without systems of support for whatever reason that may be. Economic collapse or pandemic, it doesn't matter. The reality is the same. And the problem that most people have, and they can't see for the forest for the trees, economic collapse and pandemic are so interrelated. Take away the economic infrastructure and health declines. Destroy the health infrastructure and the economy will falter. All of these things are like dominoes, but instead of a big line, like when you're a kid and you push one, they all fall over, they're all leaning in, and they're all holding each other up. And all you have to do is take one out, and they fall in. It's more like a house of cards than a row of dominoes. So we have to prepare to deal with up systems of support and damn whatever disaster it may be. Because it could be a disaster for you and your house only, your neighbor doesn't even know about, or it could be a disaster for us all, But our five primary survival needs, that's what we need to plan for. The next one is that green energy is for independence, not for saving polar bears. To the dismay of many people that listen to this show, I think global warming is the biggest hoax on the planet. I think it is nothing about enriching the coffers of people that want to trade carbon credits and take a tiny molecule and turn it into a new fiat currency. But that doesn't matter. You can believe that bullshit if you want to, and it is bullshit. And if you still believe it after climate gate and everything that's gone on since then, and, and the people that called it global warming changing it to climate change and then uh, now it's global disruption, then that's fine. My statement to you though is, you put a solar array on your home with a battery backup system so that you're independent of your need for the electrical grid that could fail someday. And if you get a warm fuzzy because you think a polar bear is going to be happy, fine, but your family needs to be kept warm, they need to be kept cool, they need to be able to cook their food, they need to be able to communicate with other people, and in the modern world, we use electricity for that, so it is very important to me that if you're going to be a survivalist in the modern world, you have some plan toward energy independence. It may not be the first thing you do, and it probably shouldn't. Having a way to defend your home and six months' worth of food are going to come first. Plain and simple. But at some point, you need to start taking that leap and developing an energy independence plan for more reasons than just that the grid might fail. Let me put it in perspective for you. The average American works their entire life at a job they would prefer not to work at. They save as much money as they can into things like 401Ks and IRAs during that period of time. They pay massive, massive amounts of money into Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And eventually they get to a point where they don't have to work anymore and their best years are gone. During their entire life, they buy their five survival needs, a la carte. And one of those is energy. They buy gas when they need to fill their car up. They pay their electric bill every month. They pay their gas bill every month and what have you. Or whatever sources of energy they use, they buy it a little at a time. When you do something like put in solar or wind or any other form of alternative energy, or anything that just improves your energy efficiency so you use less, the cost is not a cost. Now we're back to like buying the food. It's an investment. So that the old person that's 65 and retired for real at 65, because they can, because they stayed out of debt, and did all the stuff we're talking about today, that has a solar array, or a wind farm, or whatever it is that produces 50% of their electricity, has purchased half their electrical needs for the rest of their lives. And thereby are 50% more independent than you will ever be, because most Americans will retire, and start drawing that money out, continue to buy their needs a la carte for the rest of their life, and hope they die before the money runs out. So whether it's because the grid failed or I failed because I got old and failed like we all do, at some point we can't keep doing what we do. We can no longer earn our daily bread from the sweat of our brow. Whether we're doing it as a computer programmer or actually out as a construction worker, we all reach that point where we can't or we just don't want to anymore. And we live in a society that teaches us to remain dependent on those systems. And I'm saying break free. Green energy is how you do that. It's for your freedom, not so that some yuppie somewhere can feel better about it. I won't say too much about the next one, because I've already kind of covered it when I talked about food. And that is own land and make it produce. I believe that you need to have a plan to own some land. Somewhere in your life. Now, if you're 21 and in college and, and you're, you're getting your degree and you're doing it smart and you, uh, don't have a lot of extra money and you pretty much are spending the little bit of extra money you have on some pizza and beer, I don't care. Be a kid. Enjoy it. Hopefully you're doing some prepping too, but you're not gonna buy a house in that scenario. It doesn't make sense. You're not gonna buy land in that scenario. It doesn't make sense. But at some point, your life has to evolve into where you start looking at being 65. Being fifty-five, being forty-five, and not being dependent anymore. And land ownership is how that happens. And people say, But you have to pay taxes on the land. You have to pay to live wherever you are. You know, unless you're gonna be a hermit and live up in the in the national forest somewhere in Idaho and you want that lifestyle, fine, go do it. But unless that's you, you're probably not listening to a podcast. But unless that's you, you're going to have to pay to live wherever you have to live. You find the land with the lowest taxes you can possibly find based on what you want for your life. And you pay off the debt on the land and the house and the property and the systems that you put in there. Like like green energy like we just talked about. You get out of debt as quick as you can. And the tax is so small compared to the average person's income. When we're just looking at property tax, it beats the alternative of paying the tax and paying all the other bills. And I wish it wasn't there. Oh God, I understand what you're saying, but what are you going to do? Opt out? You're just going to sit in the middle of a street? You got to, you got to understand that there is a certain amount of the system that we have to accept and use to create freedom from all the other parts of the system that we've been conditioned from birth to be bolted into. Land ownership starts to get you there. Understand this: people did not come to America because we had a cool flag. They didn't come here because of our our form of government. Not in itself. They didn't come here because they heard the Star Spangled Banner and decided I'm leaving Italy or or, uh, Ireland or the Ukraine or anywhere. They came here in the 1800s because this was one of the few places in the world that the average person could own land. Land ownership. Not A tenth of an acre in suburbia, unless that's what you want. But not the suburban lifestyle. That is not the American dream. A real piece of land that you can shape, you can produce from, and that you keep the production from. It doesn't belong to a king or a nobleman or a knight or a lord or a lady or a czar. It's yours. If you had land as a peasant in England in the 1700s, and you grew a sheaf of wheat a sheaf of wheat by the way is the big bundle that you see of wheat it belonged to the king and you got to keep a portion now unfortunately if you're in business for yourself today the wheat belongs to you in America but when you sell it a portion of the profit goes to the king our government but it's yours first at least and if you consume it they get nothing that's the American dream. That's why land ownership has to be part of your plan. It doesn't mean tomorrow. It doesn't mean if you don't have a piece of land, you're not a survivalist. It just means that this is, again, a marathon. And at some point, that is a step in the race. Next, very basic. You have to use pragmatic preparations. Real survivalists have college funds for their children so that they don't end up in student loan debt for so long that the student loan debt is like a pet. They have a name for it. Real survivalists have life insurance. I've had people get mad at me for saying that. If you are the sole breadwinner in your family and you don't have life insurance, you are wrong. Let me put it to you this way. Sit down with your whole family and then you're dead. And what does your family do? You are more likely to get hit by a truck tomorrow than this economy is to collapse tomorrow. Doesn't mean the other one can't happen. It just means, hey. Tomorrow somebody's going to get hit by a truck and it could be you. Tomorrow somebody's going to go sit their doctor, and he's going to say, man, I don't know how to tell you this other than just to be blunt. You got six months to live. It's going to happen. Over and over and over again. So it wills. You know? Basic documentation of what happens after you're gone. Setting things up in a trust so they're handed down properly. All of the things that just seem like common business sense, those are part of your preps. I'll leave it at that today. I think that's enough. Uh, It's it's easy enough to understand. The next one wasn't in the original list. The original list was only 10. And these next two are the ones that I've added. And then the last one was always there. And that is have a means of defense. I think that this country is one of the few places in the world, that I think it's the only place in the world, that recognizes your right as an individual to own arms is an inherent human right given to you by your creator, and I think you should exercise that right. I think that you should own a gun, and I think that every able-bodied American person should own a gun. I think you should be trained how to use it. I think you should know how to be safe with it. I think you should know how to maintain it. But I think you should be prepared for the day that one day, your life or the life of someone you love or the life of someone that is innocent may hinge on your ability to act and use that gun. And I don't think there's any wiggle room on this one at all. If you are in touch with the dangers that we face and the breakdown that we may see in society, you better have a gun. If you're one of my international listeners and you live in a place that doesn't recognize your right to own a gun, you should own the most effective means of defense you can legally own in your country, whatever that may be. I can't tell you if you're here, do this, and if you're there, do that, because I don't know all the laws of the world, and frankly, I don't have enough room in my brain to put them all in there if if I wanted to. But you should own a means of defense, and you should be highly trained in its effectiveness. The American rifleman should remain and always be the most efficient rifleman on the planet, period. This nation was built on the gun. And all the pablum-puking liberal crap about how guns are bad is just plain bullshit. I mean, that's as simple as I can make it. It does you no good to put a solar array on your home, have a year's supply of food, and have society break down, and then have someone that's stronger than you simply come take it away from you. This nation may one day be in the throes of revolution the way that Egypt is right now. Revolutions are one, on two things. The ability to defend yourself and the ability to subside, to to exist. The endurance factor. That's why you have to be able to feed yourself, provide yourself water, provide yourself shelter. All of the things we've talked about. But on top of it, you have to be able to defend it. Believe that there is no danger and danger will appear. Think that we can get to a point where society breaks down and your neighbor won't steal from you, and you're wrong. It is necessary. It is necessary if you love your family, if you love your community, if you love your nation, that you be willing to defend it. And the use of arms is the best way to do that. I know that might have an ideological difference with some people. But here's what I'll tell you. If you go out and get training, and you understand the proper use of arms, I won't have to convince you of anything. I've had people say, how do I convince my anti-gun friend that guns are are a good thing and necessary and and part of the Constitution and all that? Take them to the range. Get them professional instruction. Put a gun in their hand and get them to shoot. And that will fix 90% of people's problems. And the other 10%, they're idiots, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I know I just got a bunch of people angry again. That makes you angry. Tough crap. Honest to God. If me believing that I have a right to defend myself, my family, my community from those that would take what we have and what we've built and to do so with lethal lethal force if necessary, if presented with no other option, offends you, go find a nation that doesn't believe you have that right. There's plenty of them out there. Leave this one to us, because we're not giving it up. And I know I'm getting a little bit political here, but it's really not about politics. I promise you, I promise you, that if you are without a means of defense in a true long-term disaster scenario, everything you've built will be taken from you, because that's what happens, and history has shown it to happen over and over and over again. And to quote Ronald Reagan, who's not my favorite president, but he sure had his moments, no nation has ever been attacked because they were perceived as being too strong. Well, no no individual is ever attacked for being perceived to be too strong. You are attacked for being perceived as weak. The next one is also really a full show onto itself. So I'll just give you a mile high view because we're over an hour now. That is, you have to have full documentation for any disaster need. Some basics of this is you should have in your vehicle a binder or a folder. And in that folder should be maps with routes and evacuation routes of three different ways to get to three different places. That's a total of nine routes. Each one of those routes should have at least three places where you can meet up with somebody on. Call them rally point A, B, and C. You know, however you want to lay that out. Google Maps, what have you, that's got to be there. Phone numbers to everybody you would ever need to contact. Phone numbers to your bank, your financial institutions. Um, If you still have a credit card, you know, your credit card information. I'll tell you how to protect all this information in just a second. Don't get all caught up on that yet. Um, Things like tree trimmers, if there's a tree down in your yard, and it's just a simple disaster, but you need to get the cars out. Being able to know who to call and calling them first and be the first guy on the list to get out, is a good idea. And now the big he-man is going, I don't do that. I'm a survivalist. I have a steel chainsaw in my garage. I've got two of them for redundancy. I've cut trees down my whole life. If that tree falls, I'm going to be out there getting rid of my tree, and then I'm going to be going down through my neighborhood getting my neighbors out. And you're not going to do it if the tree came through your house and hit you while you were laying in bed and broke your arm. And now you're expecting your wife or your, your five-year-old kid to do this? When we start to believe that we'll just take care of everything, we lose touch with the fact that we are human. And by human, we are flawed because we are easily injured or killed. We have to have contingencies, not just what we'll do if we're able-bodied, but what those we leave behind will do if we're dead, or those that are with us will do if we're injured. So, if you want to, you can look up, I'll put a link today to my uh my episode on building uh, a survival documentation package. But that has to be a key tenant to what you're doing. And you have to have mirrors of this. I said every vehicle. There should probably be one in the home too. So this needs to be done on a computer, and that way when you make a change, you do print three copies, and you put them in and you pull the old information out, and you keep them always updated. So that when your wife's freaking out, or your husband's freaking out, or your kid's freaking out, and they're 18 miles away and they need to meet you at Rally Point Alpha on evacuation route 1. You can go Go to page 19. Look right there. This is where you are. Put a circle right there. You see that? That's where you are. This is how you get there. I'll be there when you get there. And all of the panic comes down because of that. And it's not, I don't know what you mean. I can't remember. I'm No. Now we're looking at the same thing almost like we're side by side. It is so critical now. How do you protect things like let's say you had a bank account number and you want to protect your bank account number? Well, one real easy thing to do is you simply do what's called number one uh, a, a, a positive or negative uh, off of encryption. So maybe you have your positive to encryption, and everybody in the family knows that, but only everybody in the family knows that. So if your bank account number was uh, let's say it was it was uh, five seven nine. If you had a positive 2 encryption, it would become 790. If it was a negative 2 encryption, uh, it would become 357. And you just do that with all your numbers. Another thing you do, most bank account numbers, if you add a 1 to the front and a 0 to the back and put a dash in them, they look like a phone number. You can do whatever you want, as long as the numbers can be interpreted by everybody in the family that would need to interpret them, and only the family knows whatever key there is to do this. You also have to understand that unless the person has, you know, like social security number, identification, etc., your bank account number doesn't do them a tremendous amount of good in the middle of a disaster. But if they get a hold of that at a bad time, you got identity theft there. So things like your social security number, probably you don't need to have that written down, even with an encryption level. But you could. It's really not that hard. Again, you could add numbers to it and and do a, a number off encryption. But it, what it makes most sense to do is for everybody to, like m- mom and dad should have each other's social memorized. You should have your own memorized. Then that piece of information doesn't need to go down there. And, and that, that is one thing you can just take out. But things like bank account numbers and, and access information, you can do a little simple encryption. And you may really need that information, you know, uh, especially if you have to evacuate. And again, it's not the end of the world. But it's the end of the world as you know it, not as we know it, but as you know it. And you're 250 miles from home, and you need to access your funding. And people say, well, what if the banks fail? Well, then you won't be able to access your funding. But again, what if it's just you, or just your neighborhood, or just your city? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to use the resources you do have available? Documentation is key for doing that. What I'm going to sum up with today, though, is the absolute most important one. And I'm going to read to you where I originally wrote it down. Um, Over two years ago, I wrote this, and it's on the article about this on the website, um, and it's number 10 of the original 10. Your personal philosophy is more important for you than mine. You are the master of your own life, and if you don't agree with my views, great. Define, understand, implement your own. The biggest thing you can do is to understand that you are in control of your life and that what you do matters. Those two factors have the greatest impact on individual survival across every demographic you can imagine. And what I mean by that, I've told this story before, but I'll tell you again. I've talked to oncologists, and that's a doctor that deals with a patient who has cancer. And what they've told me is when two patients have almost identical diagnosis, the same stage, the same type of cancer, relatively the same age, the same level of overall health, If those two patients are different in only one way, and one patient is completely compliant says, Doctor, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. I trust in you. I know my odds might not be good, but we're going to do what we can to survive. Whatever treatments you tell me to take, I will take. And the other person is, in the words of one oncologist, a pain-in-the-ass patient. The patient actually does every single treatment that the other one does, but they want to know why. Is there any options? What are my chances with this? What else could I do? What else should I be doing? Explain this to me. The pain in the ass lives more often than the compliant person. They tell you that just so if you get cancer, you'll be a pain in the ass for your doctor? No, but be a pain in the ass for your doctor. History has shown that it works. The difference, and it's not like a guaranteed thing, but the difference when the odds of survival are 30% and then... The pain in the ass has a survival rate of 45%. That 15%, that X factor, is that they know what they do matters. And they fight for survival. And they never just lay down and die. What does that have to do with you making your own plan, your own philosophy being more important than mine? See, the problem with every other thing that I've seen with disaster preparedness other than this core philosophy is it presumes to tell you what to do. I just gave you a whole list of things I think you should be doing. The difference is when I end it, I say, unless you don't believe that. You see, I know that if I give you my plan and tell you you need to do these things, when you run up against obstacles and points of contention and hard decisions, and I know you will have those things happen, then you will default to who you really are. And all of the things that I said were important will no longer be important. But if you take my information and you absorb it and you make it your own and you tailor it to your life and you develop your own plan, you decide how much alternative energy you need, if any, and you decide when you're going to have it. You decide, yeah, I'm going to get rid of my debt, but here's my one year or my two year or my three year plan, depending on how much debt you have and how much income you have. If you decide, yes, I'm going to have a year's worth of food, but it's going to take me two years before I do. But here's my plan to get there. If you decide, yes, I'm going to own land, but not right now, because I'm a college student, I don't have any money. But I'm going to start saving a little bit of money right now, putting it away in my slush fund, so that one day I can, and by the time I'm 26, I will own land. Or by the time I'm 28, I will own land. If you do these things, if you write your plan based on your beliefs and your ethics and your priorities and your life, then when you run up against an obstacle, you will find a way around it because it will be important to you because you will own it. And if it's just 50 things I put in a book and tell you to do, it's not going to happen. Because I will be arrogant and I will believe what fits me fits you like a glove. I will believe that me, when I'm 5 foot 11 inches tall and 230 pounds, And a great big man can wear a glove and hand it to a 113 pound woman and that glove's supposed to fit her the same way. And that's arrogance. And as I said in the beginning, I try not to be arrogant even if I sound like it once in a while. There's a difference between emphatic belief and trying to share that belief with somebody else and a belief that the only course for that person is to absorb what you've decided 100% onto themselves. It won't work. And it's why so many people get into preparedness and eventually fall out. And I don't want that for anybody that listens to this show. I want if you listen to this show just one time in your life and it awakens something in you, even if you choose never to listen to me again, I want preparedness to become a lifestyle for you. And the only way I can make that happen is to give you the freedom to sculpt it for yourself so even though I said you need to own a gun if you don't think you do then that's your choice I really hope you consider it I really hope you think about it I really hope if I've said anything today that pissed you off or made you angry you realize that just maybe that's because there's something in there that you don't want to face but if you face it and you come out the other side satisfied then you make your choices and as an adult, as a responsible citizen, you get to live with your choices. See, that's the other side of the freedom of choice. You get to live with the, with the, with the results. You can do whatever you want. Anything you want in this world. If you don't hurt anybody else. I, I, that's how I feel. I believe that there should be no such thing as a victimless crime. You want a smoke pot? I don't give a damn. I don't care. But if your wife ends up in a shambles, don't ask me to put it back together for you. That's just one example. So when it comes to preparedness, I bring that philosophy to it as well. I want you to have a year's supply of food. You think a month is enough, fine. But don't expect me to feed you on day 45. If I can, I will, but don't expect it. Because I probably can't when we're that deep into it, when we're that far into it. I tell you to own a gun and know how to use it so you can defend your family. Don't expect that when you're under assault that I will come to your aid. If I can, I will, but I may not be there. And don't penalize me because I wasn't. This is true survivalism. True survivalism is not really about just waking up and breathing tomorrow. It's about independence and liberty. And if we are to be free and independent and liberated people, we must give other people the same freedom and respect to make their own choices. So what I call on you today is to build your plan for modern survival your way. But by God, know why you believe what you believe. And stick to your own principles. And develop your own principles. And take my philosophy and use from it what makes the most sense for you. But please don't dismiss the things I've given to you without full consideration and full research. If you'll do that, you'll see why these 12 tenants created what they've created in this community. Because they're based on fact, and they're based on history, and they're based on reality. And they're based on a belief that we must plan for everything we must plan for the most dark disaster we can imagine and we must, must plan for the most prosperous time we can imagine as well we must balance between those two worlds because none of us has a working crystal ball and none of us really knows what's going to happen next and none of us even really knows what a failure is going to be like it could be as dark as any Hollywood movie could make it out to be Or it could be a change that's so subtle that people don't even realize how they've been hurt by it until it's too late to do anything about it. And that's what's happened. When it comes to the economy, that's happened five times since 1913. Americans have been harmed and harmed and harmed and harmed and harmed. And most of them don't even know what happened. They simply say, my 401k balance is bigger than it was yesterday. I have a a swimming pool with warm water in it. Everything must be okay. And they're more a slave to the system today than their parents were, and their parents were more a slave than their grandparents, and that means they will have children that will live in greater slavery than they do unless they break the cycle. Modern survivalism is not just preparedness for disaster. It's how we break the cycle of slavery and with that, this has been Jack spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.